This is the Rare Petro Podcast, a podcast for industry professionals and students to quickly gather information by Basin for business happenings, headlines, and trends. Welcome back to another episode of Last Month in Oil and Gas. You've got Saw here. And Tavis. Still chugging along. Still trying. It's the new year, of course. I mean, we had that little break. I really enjoyed it. I know I did. But we're going to try to get back to schedule as soon as possible. I promise in two weeks, things will be just the way they were. Yeah. Yeah. The New Year's uh, New Year party, the hangover still pretty much intact. <laughs> Today is the 29th of January. Hey, you do you, man. <laughs> First up, we've got Binance. As I mentioned, it is January the 29th, and commodity prices sit at WTI being $53.30 a barrel, and natural gas at $1.87. And it looks like Noble Midstream will be moving from the New York Stock Exchange to NASDAQ. The CEO, David Stover, says that this will allow for leveraging NASDAQ's data analytics to better service their shareholders. Outside of that, Austin-based Parsley Energy is doubling down on the Permian. They recently bought the Denver-based company Jagged Peak Energy for $2.3 billion dollars, and filed 12 permits soon after the deal. With 15 rigs in operation and an expenditure budget this year between $1.6 billion and $1.9 billion, they're looking to make some really big moves. That wraps up most of the financial news in December of 2019, so without further ado, let's pop right into news basin by basin for other things that we saw that month. Sounds like in Texas, they're doing well as they usually do, and uh, we've got some job growth over there. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so Permian Basin, you know, we're looking at Texas and southeast New Mexico. Um, Permian Basin's stretching all across that, and we're seeing actually an increase in jobs as oil and gas production is, you know, it's booming there. Um, you know, we've seen we've, our reports will show you the rig counts are down, but, hey, that doesn't mean that, you know, we're, we're, we're having a limited production. That just means we're performing efficiently. Um as we can see, the Permian employed about 87,000 workers in 2019, and that's an increase of 3,200 new jobs compared to 2018. And that's still with the barrel price as low as it is. So, Good growth. It looks like even in just the last decade, they've doubled the growth with the addition of 42,000. Things are going well. Yeah, and hey, these boys are getting paid well too. We're talking an average wage that's about coming at $98,000, and that's literally 101% higher than the average private sector wage in that region, that region being, you know, in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. Outside of that, there's a Houston company that is going to develop its first 5G-enabled oil drilling site in the Permian. Just last podcast, we were talking about this. Yeah, yeah, we talked about, hey, uh, the next bottleneck that's, that can kind of, you know, MP production and kind of, uh, you know, uh, act as a roadblock to oil and gas development in the, in the United States. You know, Texas, you're coming in wondering about, hey, do we have pipelines? Get that figured out. Then it's, can we get the water, right? Figure that out. And then it's, how do you get rid of the water? Um, now we're looking at, you know, broadband, you know, the, the bandwidth to be able to carry out oil and gas operations, you know, on, on the site, on the field, and still be able to provide your guys the up-to-date information when you need it. This company is taking on a great initiative and actually kind of getting a head start on something that could, you know, be the next roadblock, like I said, for, for the Permian Basin, which contributes single-handedly the most oil and gas production in the United States. So with this company going out there, you know, being able to provide first 5G, you know, um, drilling sites, you know, infrastructure networks, it's, it's going to be awesome. Oh, man, this is going to have some production engineers jumping for joy. No more long truck rides. Pull it up on the desktop. Peep it yeah, there. Yeah, man, I still, you know, I still have 4G, and, you know, the Roughnecks might have 5G. So. <laughs> 5G, they're new. Yeah, we're going to figure that out. Let's see who can update their Twitter faster. In terms of the Marcellus, Chevron seems to have pulled out of their operations there. 
it seems like with the gross overproduction and low natural gas pricing and having other options, especially in the Permian, they've decided to dip out. There's some sweet spots in the Marcellus, but they're a bit too far west to make it an effective area for them to operate. So along with that overproduction, low commodity price, they decide pull out. But the most unfortunate part is they sunk a couple billion dollars in production of facilities. Yeah, I know. So, you know, Chevron's heavily invested in the Permian also. You know, we, we talked about last month how they're making a play, buying more land, you know, really get involved in that shale. Um, and, you know, some of the things that you see in the Marcellus, you know, when this report that we um, – that we're actually referencing currently, you know, they talk about how the formation thickness in the Marcellus is greater than 50 feet. That's not what you see in the Permian. It's, you know, that, that essentially takes out a lot of your time, a lot of your costs. And, hey, as big as Chevron is, I think for them, this is, you know, pennies to the dollar. Um, this would be something a small operator would, you know, I would say invest the time to stay and, you know, develop in the Marcellus. But with, with the choices and, you know, the, the other cards that, that that chevron has in his hands you know it's um it, it's an economical choice i would say at the end of the day for them to just stick to the premium and just stick with what they know and get going with and along with that overproduction there's just not the demand to match that supply there's challenges in that region to develop something that will require that much gas and a lot of them are looking towards ethane crackers yeah, pipelines man pipelines all everywhere you don't have you know we've got what we need we've got the natural gas we've got way i don't want to say way too much but we have we've got know, a lot we have got a lot in that region and the thing is there's not enough pipelines that are, that are that are working towards you know being for being able to move it there's not a lot of exports that are coming out of that region Currently, you know, natural gas is priced at dollar eighty nine. What can you expect to make out of that? On top of that, your your additional costs that are that are coming into your economics are, hell, you can't move it. So there's not there's not a lot you can do there. So do you think that moving it across borders, you know, interstate transportation, will increase that demand for gas, or do we need to develop more infrastructure such as gas heating? I would say in, infrastructure is obviously you know for for it to be for it to for it to turn that commodity into something that you know we can actually sell at the end of the day. That's what the infrastructure needs to be in place for. But the thing is, now we're having problems. Well, see, number one is you don't have the infrastructure to create it into what people want. Secondly, people don't want that as of right now because the price is not worth much. And lastly, I think what Pennsylvania has going for itself, it exported out of the country. That's, that's where we can really earn you know, more than what, what the United States is paying. Um, last, I think the, we've talked about how you know, companies um, – in the Marcellus play, Pennsylvania, you know, they're making a play for, you know, exporting it out to Japan and places like that. I think, yeah, I see if we see contracts like that, you know, but then you have, you know, geopolitical impacts, you know, of the current administration, you know, with, with everything that's kind of going on, you know, certain relationships are strained, you know, what, what, what have you. It's, uh, you know, it's things like that. But it's, you're, I would say, focusing with getting this, this commodity out of the States where it's worth a little bit more, where you can get paid four or five bucks compared to that dollar, you know, what do, I, what do we say, 89 today? It, it, it's just a lot more ideal for operators. Definitely. And the good thing about these operations is it does bring a lot of jobs to the state. But there's a looming threat of banning fracking. Who wants to do it? Government agencies, activist groups, lots of people want to do this. But a study by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce determined that in Pennsylvania alone, 609,000 jobs and $261 billion would be lost if they banned fracking. Yeah, and that $261 billion, the $261 billion, yeah, value is at the current pricing. And this is some of the lowest prices we've ever seen. And this is talking about, about 2025, right? Now, looking into that forecast, yeah, we can sit here and, you know, you know, talk about what potentially it'll be and what the price would be. But 
ideally that that that's a huge amount that's being lost a huge revenue a lot more than 261 billion that's going to be lost 261 billion is the low end out of pure yeah. commodity pricing yeah and hey even you know talking looping back a little bit into the price what we're seeing here especially in the pennsylvania region right we've talked about how you know the usgs they 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 have shown reports after reports that they've found more more gas currently right they, they i think last figures were 214 trillion cubic feet was found underneath you know within the marcel shale now there's your number one issue for the price being you know a buck 89 currently you've got too much supply where there's not much of demand and you got to keep that supply low to keep that demand ideally that's what you're seeing happening in that region the problem is that this is a cyclical nature as soon as the price goes up the demand increases. Everyone goes, all right, rigs up. Let's start drilling. Gas is $2.50. Let's make some money. But then the demand is grossly under the supply and prices fall again. Yeah. And see, that's that's the thing. Like you said, it's, it's a cyclic process, right? We're seeing, you know, the shit end of it right now. And ideally, next five, you know, seven, eight years, I would say, where the demand goes up where you've got states that are pushing for that renewable, you know, out of, out of the fossil fuels play, but heck, you're still going to need your natural, that's where natural gas will, you know, come into play. That's where that demand will come into. We have to acknowledge the fact that slowly we need to turn into, into, into that world, right? We need to kind of step away slowly and slowly from these fossil fuels, but ideally natural gas, that's where it will come into play. It's going to, it's going to help you reach, you know, th those little, those old, you know, standards that we're trying to meet and get to the better future that we're kind of expecting. And when that demand goes up, operators that are currently, you know, getting, having a real rough time in the Marcel Shale will ideally be, you know, will be, it'll be better days for them. And I would say it's coming up, you know, give it another five, you know, eight years. I think it's coming up. Like, like the great point you brought up is, you know, a cyclic process. That's the industry we chose. And you just kind of, kind of ride the wave until it goes right back up. I've got high hopes for carbon capture. I think if we master that, we can find a way to use all of this gas in a way yep. that people find acceptable. But it seems like things are going well in the Marcellus. Unfortunately, things aren't going that well in Oklahoma. Right after Thanksgiving, early December, Halliburton laid off an additional 800 employees at their Oklahoma offices. Close the offices, people out, gone. Yeah, just calling it a day, right? This, is, this comes in after uh, we reported... That in mid-October, Halliburton laid off 650 people in the Rocky Mountain region, right? States that were impacted then were Colorado and Wyoming. Now we're talking about the entire office being shut down in Oklahoma, right? And that, that's just 800 people out the door. We're getting reports that senior engineers are actually taking up the responsibilities of these, of these, you know, of the, of the engineers that were let go. Because at this time, it's, you know, ideally, I'm thinking it's crunch time for these guys, right? They're thinking about cost-cutting. Unfortunately, as we've mentioned, uh, a valid cost-cutting method is getting rid of a lot of the employees, which is unfortunate. It's, it's a big, you know, big change. You know, this not just impacts, you know, the 800 people that are that were let go, but this impacts, you know, even potential, you know, young engineers that are coming into the industry that are hoping to start off with, uh, you know, such a, you know, giant, you know, a service company that has been there from the beginning of time and has such a good reputation. And they were hoping to, you know, start the time off of that. And now it's looking like, you know, they're not, you know, they're not looking to get, get you on and get you going. So it's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely something to consider, but yeah. Also operators in Oklahoma are looking to reduce the, what they call chronic oversupply of the product of gas. Right now, low price environment for commodities such as gas. So in order to boost the prices domestically, they're looking to limit the amount that each operator can produce, hopefully sell it for a bit more. Yeah. 
you know, simple, you know, simple economics, econ 101, you know, some of the simple courses we took in high school and college, you know, it's supply and demand curves. To keep that demand high, you got to control the supply here. That's ideally what we're seeing here, and I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think it's actually, um, I would say, it would be beneficial. Um, you know, every state kind of has rules set along the lines of what these operators are trying to accomplish, and even, you know, even in Oklahoma, you know, commi the, the, the commission has not, you know, they've set laws and rules in place for operators to limit their production from the from the gas wells at either 65% of a well's absolute open flow potential or 2 million cubic feet per day, you know, whichever happens to be greater. And ideally, the goal is to, you know, to have that, to, you know, to have just enough of a supply as to where, you know, you're actually making a few bucks off of it and you don't have just so much of it that it's not worth anything at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a good idea. It's just you have to balance on that tightrope where you go between limiting supply and price gouging. Fortunately, well, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it with the current price, I think it would be hard to achieve that, especially with the oversupply of gas that we have. So hopefully this does improve the price for domestic Oklahoma area and some operators see the benefit. Yeah, talking about operators, price, and some shit stocks to buy. Uh, Chesapeake Energy clocking in at 55 cents. So Yeesh. yeah, get your, get your bids in before that bell rings, right? In all seriousness, we do not recommend that you do purchase Chesapeake right now. Yeah, no. That is 55 cents. Please don't. But also, it seems they are facing some other struggles at the moment. So, I care to expand on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, just talking about, you know, Aubrey, uh, the late Aubrey McClendon, you know, the FBI is, um, the, some of the files have kind of come out and it kind of shows uh, the exact allegations, you know, of the, the trade secret theft of uh, Chesapeake Energy Corporation. You know, it was... um. Kind of looking into, um, you know, new documents show that they were looking into that just along with the, um, you know, antitrust allegations that were kind of brought against uh, Mr. McClendon. But, you just know, a lot of disaster in his wake that really they struggled with. You know, moving on over to the Eagleford Basin and kind of uh, staying on par with um, what we just talked about, you know, lawsuits, allegations, you know, just coming up. So turns out in Eagleford, Equinor has got a lawsuit filed against this energy company for systematically shortchanging royalty owners. Now, this isn't one royalty owner. Two? two no. Ten. No. Twenty? Twenty? No, dude. Add another zero. Two hundred royalty owners. These are the ones that one law firm chose to represent. So this is possibly going to be, you know, a lot more people that are affected by it but never actually, you know, realize this. But as of right now, 200 royalty owners are accusing Econor for manipulating numbers and engaging in questionable accounting practices. Yeah, so that's kind of happening right now. You know, Econor has kind of been um, dealing with a lot, as we have talked about in previous months, but now this kind of uh, shines a different light onto uh, this this operator and kind of shows as to, um, you know, what might be actually going on within the company and the turmoil that we're seeing, you know, with its stock and everything else has kind of happened along the way. Yeah, it's still early on too, so it's going to be nice to look at that, see if there was some legal loopholes they were actually using, or if they were just straight up shortchanging the American land and yeah. mineral owners that yeah, were. Yeah, hey, it's second or you know they're not you know they're not from these woods, so they probably don't understand that royalty owners. <laughs> their sole job is to, um, you know, get paid before all the additional costs come on. That's what they're there for. You know, they let you carry out the crew. They let you carry out. You know. What's on their land? You and could not get without their permission. Yeah, and you literally, they literally don't care for anything else. You have to, royalty gets knocked out literally right off the top. They don't care about the cost. None of the costs impacts them. You know, we're not going to go to the economic model here, but clearly, Equinor doesn't realize that with the great, you know, 
United States royalty owners intend to do with their funds and as to how much they appreciate them. Yeah, we'll see how this case develops when more details come out, though. Maybe they're not as bad as they seem, or maybe they're stealing on our land. Who knows? Who knows? I'm hey, not yeah, 200, 200 is a little bit bigger of a number. So it's pretty be, substantial. Hey, there's got to be some stock behind that allegation, right? Yeah. Also, more bad news. Apache closing their San Antonio office. Another 300 jobs gone. Closing of the San Antonio office as part of the reorganization plan to save an extra $150 million per year. Yeah, yeah. see, this is, Apache's been doing this, like, globally, right? Um, San Antonio kind of makes sense. They're heavily invested. You know, Houston is where they they primarily operate out of. Um, but I actually didn't even really know much about the San Antonio office. But, yeah, they're, they've been doing this all across their, you know, all across their locations. You know, like I said, globally, where they're trying to limit this workforce by, I think they said 15%. Um and it's just a kind of a restructure that they're trying to do. And this kind of, this includes that, this includes the fact that these, some of the guys that are being let go are not just, you know, you know, go off home to, or something like that, but they're trying to allow some engineers, some of the great guys that they had to transfer to Houston and, you know, other field offices. So it's not just plain and simple, like, you know, Halliburton we just talked about where they just said, all right, have a good day. 800 of you people can just go home now. Not as bad, but still undesirable. Even so, I think we're ready to move on to your favorite part of the podcast. Let's talk about California. Oh, good God, man. I got to I gotta take some Advil here to get rid of this headache. <laughs> Let's see uh, what's going on in California, right? Um, well, first, hey. we got cleanup of orphaned wells. A lot of wells from just in the past in general. Uh, there's an estimated 5,500 that need to be cleaned up, and it's going to cost the state, that's right, the state of California themselves, $500 million. Yeah. Of that $500 million, uh, the liable costs that the companies of those wells were required to pay, only $26 million was raised. So California's got a hefty bill to close up some of these yeah. wells. Yeah, and that, you know, that $26 million, you know, although that big cost is the $500 million has been estimated by the California Council, right? So that's what the state thinks it's going to cost. The $26 million is what the oil and gas companies are legally liable for. Um, so ideally, you know, you want to see as to how they're going to come up with these funds and, you know, you kind of got to see as to where the state can raise this money to even to be able to even pay for all this stuff. And let's talk about one of the industries that earns every person money. You know, maybe not in this economy, not today, but ideally it will. And that's oil and gas. But, you know, California being being itself, you know, all these laws and regulations that they're passing, you know, it's going to be tough to see as to how they come up with those funds when there's regulations after regulations limiting oil and gas activity. And with those regulations, I think all that's going to do is create further abandonment of wells. I mean, even this article, I think this is hefty over speculation, but it reported that another 69,000 wells have little to no production and little hope of restarting. Even if it was just half of that, let's say we'll just round down low end 30, that's 30,000, a little under six times more than the 5,500 already existing. Yeah, That's yeah. a little over six times more, $500 million required to clean this up. That's far too expensive. California's going to have to roll back some of their regulations if they don't want to pocket the cost of chasing the industry out of the state or not complete these abandonment processes safely and effectively, which, which I doubt you know, they will do. Yeah, which, you know, you know, just not in terms of environmental, yeah, just, you know, honestly, too, you know, just for environmental concerns itself, obviously those walls need to be taken care of. But, hey, that's, yeah, the first question is, you know, how, how they're going to come up with these funds. And it's... Hey, let's yeah. ask Newsom. I mean, it's his fault. Yeah, he his clearly has. <laughs> yeah, he clearly uh, clearly has the right answers, right? But you know, taking on talking on more about that, um, you know, Kern County, where we're seeing all this oil and gas development essentially in California, they um held a meeting 
to talk about the state's um, very oil-unfriendly policies. And, you know, for one, it drew one of the largest crowds that that council has ever seen. Over 1,000 people showed up, lined up outside the door. And that's you know, big. Kern County's small. A thousand yeah. people is substantial. Yeah, actually, you know, you probably, you know, you probably met every single person in the in the county <laughs> when you went to this meeting, right? But no, yeah, all these guys came out to actually see what, you know, what the, you know, what this new, you know, governance in that state has uh, kind of done to the oil and gas industry, and essentially just it, it's very anti-oil, and there's no hiding the fact because literally every step, every action that this governance takes is kind of against oil and gas development. Um, and that's what these guys wanted to learn more about and kind of explain their point and kind of talk to them about how, um, simply put, how stupid these rules are. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. And we talked about this before, right? In June of this year, Governor Gavin Newsom set aside $1.5 million in the state budget to fund a way, fund, fund to actually a study to find ways of reducing California's petroleum supply and demand. First of all, I don't understand um, kind of the actual overall purpose of the fact that they were trying to find ways how to limit this this uh, supply and demand when, you know, you've single-handedly done that by making, you know, all these regulations come about. Well, I think it's more so transitioning to greener energy, right? Yeah. So decreasing the amount of demand on fossil fuels to exactly. also decrease the supply. Yeah. And so let's talk about the fact that, hey, you know, we're, we're talking about cost cost right now, right? First first thing, you know, they're trying to, you know, all the wells that they need to ban, they need $500 million to clean up all these orphan wells. You know, on the other side of things, Governor, Governor Gavin Newsom here is spending $1.5 million, you know, trying to figure out ways to, you know, get away from the oil and gas industry. And then the following month, the governor ends up firing the state's top oil regulator after, literally, because environmental activists raised a concern and were, you know, doing a strike about about in, in the in the sense of the state permits that the you know oil regulator filed for oil and gas activities so his fracking specifically right yeah, so his solution was this oh yeah let me spend money to figure out how we can get away from this industry all right that 1.5 million didn't really get me anything best thing i can do the public's you know causing concern to my position in the state oh yeah let me just fire the guy that actually put out all these permits and since then Virtually none of those permits have yeah. been completed, right? Yeah, they so that's the solution. Hey, that that's no, that's not a solution. You're putting a Band-Aid on top of a much bigger problem. And this is, I mean, it's... Doing nothing is not a viable yeah. solution. I mean, at this point, you can't really, you know, it's, it's it's you know, even talking about it is is not really going to help us get to, you know, get to these guys and to kind of show them that this is not the solution, right? Like, you're, you're doing, you're actively doing things that are, you know, impeding what... You know, they're, they're, you're stopping just not just oil and gas development. You're impacting your state, the people there, in various different ways. And you're just spending money on things yeah. that that don't get you any results. And your solutions after that are, hey, let me just you know, fire my technical expert. Yeah, the one guy that's yeah, because at, at that point you're just you know sharing, just putting the blame on somebody else, and you're you're not taking accountability. That's not what that that, that is ideally not what you want. And I understand governor to be doing exactly. I understand that he did that to represent the environmental groups that did cause that protest. That's that's literally why you know. But if that's the case, he should be representing as many constituents as he can. I imagine that the one thousand people in Kern County were not something to turn away from. Yeah. Maybe just as large as the environmental groups. Yeah, let's no talk one about knows, that yeah. exactly. You've got so this guy's only looking at the environmental activists. You're not. Are you kidding me? You don't notice the thousand men and women that showed up in in, in that Kern County Council meeting. 
to advocate for oil and gas because that's their livelihood that's and they understand their business. Yeah, and they understand that you know those guys actually are more aware than you know old Gavin Newsom here and about what actually happens you know underneath the you know within the rocks and how we actually drill what the process of hydraulic fracturing is. You know, Gavin Newsom probably the guy that looks up the term you know fracking after he googles it and then makes you know five laws about it once he you know there's literally I I don't think you know this this guy actually understands process of hydraulic fracturing and that's okay not everyone is expected to understand and the reaction to that fracking ban from governor gavin newsom was for trump to still open up the uh, uh, permissions to frack on federal lands yeah public and private land in california got opened up you know about a million acres but california said no no yeah we're taking you to court you can't do that so now there's a federal lawsuit California saying that their decision to ban fracking will stand. Lots of environmental groups also filed a similar lawsuit in the Los Angeles area, citing that the threat to public health and potential damage to the recreational areas caused by fracking was not considered. That's see, that's that's the thing. Oil and gas is literally one of the industries that's more aware of their surroundings and their public perception is literally it impacts their Hell, their earnings. That's what that's what it's single handedly impacts. If the public is not okay with what you're doing, if you're in their backyard doing something they don't like, no, that's not a single operator is just gonna sit there ideally not doing anything about it. They they take steps to make the public feel comfortable. They do seminars, they do lectures to inform the public. But if these guys don't want to listen, they don't want to pay attention. I mean, what, what, what can you do then, right? Uh, these, we just have to do our best to yeah, continue to educate guys, people. Yeah, these guys are going out and about, right? Filing these lawsuits in the most vague sense ever. Oh, yeah, it's a threat to public health and potential damage to the recreational areas. Where do you think the engineers that are working on these drill sites, you know, are, are part of the hydraulic, are, you know, are, are part of the frac crew, are working in some sort of manner for the oil and gas development in that area? Where do you think they live? They live there. Do you think they're just impacting? What do you think? They bring bottled water from another state because they know that they're just, you know, sitting there messing up your water? Like, no, they, these, these, these people live there. They have their, you know, kids going to school there. They're just as worried about the public health because they are the public and the recreation, the damage to the areas surrounding them just as much as the next guy, just because they're working in the industry, just because they're actually, you know, making a buck off of it does not mean that they're stupid enough to literally let their kids and, you know, themselves drink some contaminated water and, you know, ruin the areas that they like. It's the simplest sense. It's the simplest put. Dude, people that are, you know, actively doing these things, you know, these the people the media is making out to be these big bad guys, you know, the guys that are working on the drill, you know, on the rigs, this, this and that. They're, they're as invested into their own health and safety as the public's. And again, because they are part of the public. And right now, it's the job, I mean, to those listening to the podcast, whether or not you are or are not in industry, to become better educated and educate the people around us. The public does have reason to believe that shady things are going on because in the past, shady things have gone on. Yeah, that's that's when we were, no, you know, the thing is, that's when the industry itself wasn't aware. That's, we are at a point where our engineers that are working out, out in the field, you know, we need to be as aware of our surroundings as, as we ever can be. If you get asked a question by the public, you know, just a, you know, just a, just in passing by, somebody happened to ask you as to what you're doing, what these processes are. I, I truly hope and I highly suggest that the people, you know, the men and women that are working in this industry have, you know, have the knowledge themselves to be able to explain as to what's going on. Let's actually, you know, get the point across that it's not fracking, it's hydraulic fracturing. There's about three different types. There's about what, actually probably a lot more. 
There's different types of like of fracturing that you can do. The public doesn't know that itself. They just see what you know the what the fanciest new term comes out to be in the latest you know CNN article. It's or you know whatever. It's the best thing we can do is to you know coherently explain to these people as to what exactly is being done. Exactly, and companies like Occidental are even starting programs where they do train their employees to handle these types of questions. Yes, there's, I think that's great. I love yeah. it when people ask me about this, and I can go, "Actually, that's right," or "Wait, that's a misconception." Yeah. And you know, that's that's the problem. It's a misconception. It's what they're seeing versus you know, and then what they want to believe. And it's it's really it's really putting you know it's really putting a dent in in, in the public's perception of the oil and gas industry. And I I can honestly tell you, I can't think of a single other industry that is more involved with what with the public's per- perception of their work than the oil and gas industry. We have positions in, from small operators to big operators where there's literally entire divisions where their sole job is to re, you know interact with public. To, HSE, I mean, it's an acronym. Yeah, and the, yeah they, literally, they literally have, they go to these, you know, these council, these county meetings, you know, these council meetings, whatever, that whatever areas they're in. They try to go out, show, and explain to people, "Hey, we're not these bad guys that you're, you know, just, just you're kind of assuming us to be." It's, it's it, ideally that's the best thing we can do, and hopefully, you know, we get to a point where there's more of those people than, you know, the people in the state of California. You know, I couldn't have said it better myself, and I'm kind of surprised with how much we agreed on California this month. <laughs> hey, this, I'm telling you, my goal by the end of this whole ride here is to convince you about California just as much as I think about it. <laughs> See how well you can actually convince me of that. But, big news. Harold Hamm, one of the shale kings along with Aubrey, co-founded Continental Resources, has stepped down as CEO of the company. Yes, sir. Uh, he's still taking on an advisory role, but um, I think at that, that's, that's a you know good age to kind of step away from the day-to-day yeah. and kind of enjoy everything else. Before it gets right? worse. Yeah. <laughs> he's still, even though he will retain his holdings in the company because he does believe in it, but... Man, I can't wait to be there someday. Right. Ham built Continental into one of the largest independent U.S. oil companies of his time because he was searching for oil in other areas that people ignored and overlooked, the Bakken Shale. So he was really a forward thinker, someone who really brought a front to that shale boom, and we have a lot to thank him for, for his development in unconventionals. Looking actually across um, the remainder of the state, North Dakota Commission just okayed another... Um, just a kind of a order for the gas flaring issue that we've been talking about, kind of been talking about that through October, just as it's been developing. You know, the big issue has been that 82% of the gas produced is captured at the well sites and the rest is burned off. And that's kind of an issue because the state wants that target to be the gas that's actually captured at the well sites to be about 91% come November. Um, so that's kind of a jump, mainly because it's not the problem that operators can't manage that main issue comes in is the fact that there's you know the transportation and processing of natural gas that that's, lack of infrastructure and facilities to process yeah. the gas yeah yeah and then so that's what so that's what this uh this this whole thing's kind of about right so state regulators greenlighted a measure to just kind of speed up the investments in the transportation and processing of natural gas which they ideally hope will reduce wasteful flooring in the Bakken and i you know at the end of the day help operators reach the goal of 91% capture at the well site in the past five months alone we've recorded an increase in both oil and gas production i think around 14 million barrels of oil per day this month and yeah. 4 billion standard cubic feet of gas per hey, day yeah 2019 we became you know the exporter for 
oil and gas, uh, you know, in, in the, the the United States did. And well, well, OPEC, you know, they're thinking this cartel is thinking that our production is going to slow down rapidly next year. I got to say, I kind of slightly see that happening, but I don't, I don't know much about, I don't know how, ra- I don't want to say rapidly. I do see. I don't want to see it happen. Yeah, That's what I, I do yeah, know. You know, I do, I would say that the production should, you know, will be limited, if not should be, to kind of, you know, balance out the price that we're kind of seeing these days um, and kind of bring that up a tad bit. But I don't know if it's going to be, you know, the way these guys are thinking is that this is just going to just go straight down, right? I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. And the problem is, if that's the case, then the United States and OPEC, they need to monitor each other's actual production very closely because if OPEC cartel is planning to increase their output and the U.S. doesn't slow down, you're looking at, you know, shittier pricing than what we're seeing today. And that's not ideal for, you know, anybody the, on yeah, this planet. those guys, us or anything. And, you know, there's hoping that at least, you know, either we're wrong or the you know, OPEC is wrong so that we can kind of have a good commodity price that at least, you know, something that's worth, you know, being in this business for. Seems like we've been talking about a lot of lawsuits this month and the yeah. Powder River is not free of conflict as well. It seems that Laramie County residents in Wyoming are taking Occidental to court. Yeah. Basically, their claim is that Occidental has a monopoly on the land rights because Occidental owned somewhat of it after merging with Anadarko, acquired a lot more of the land, and they're not drilling right now. Not a lot of yeah. people are drilling right now, but those residents are arguing they bought that for a price that could have been competed with, with other companies, smaller operators, and they're not developing the land, and they want their money. Yeah, yeah, no, so these are just all land and mineral owners, right? We were talking about royalty owners before. They just want to get paid, right? That's At the end of the day, that's what their business is all about. Um, and, you know, they're just kind of claiming that, actually, I mean, it's the the acreage that you know that's uh you know that's that oxy is um that has right now it's it's you know it's in within the niagara codell formation place and it has it does have minerals i will say that so it's i mean it's, it's understood as to why the you know mineral and surface owners are mad because well there's a lot of money to be made for those guys um but like you said not a lot of drilling activity because we're trying to be efficient these days and kind of stay within the you know the price that we're seeing and so it makes sense that Oxy's not drilling right now, but these guys are just mad because they think that Occidental just took up all these drilling permits on that land and kind of didn't give a small operator the chance to do so. And had they been, had the small operators been given that chance, these, you know, service and mineral owners would be able to kind of earn their profit and just carry on about their day. Yeah. I mean, I totally understand it too. Yeah. If I was a mineral and surface owner, I'd be wondering, where's yeah. my check? Yeah, dude, I'm waiting here, you know, to get paid from a simple job by, you know, by the by, by the mailbox for to get paid by the end of the month. I can't imagine what these guys are going through. So hey, hopefully sense. that's not that's, their only source of income yeah. that they count on. Hey, that's there's some big bucks that are waiting to come out. So. Yeah. Otherwise, Powder River, pretty quiet, but I think that's a good thing right about now. But I think that is about all the time we have for the month. Thanks for tuning back in. Make sure to leave those reviews again, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Rare Petro Podcast, brought to you by Rare Petro. Be sure to let us know what you think, because we want to talk about what you want to listen to. This podcast is brought to you by Truck Track, an app by Rare Petro that allows you to stay updated and stay on track. Do you want to know what's going on in real time? Then download Truck Track, available in the App Store and the Google Store. Check out Rare Petro's other products, such as DCA Advantage. DCA Advantage allows you to create decline curves in the quickest and easiest way possible. Do you want to know the equation to these decline curves so that you can establish your other reservoir properties? Then download DCA Advantage.